From my home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and with me is our producer, Kate Berry. Hello. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can help you figure out how to stand up for yourself. And you'll see why that's funny later. And if you've liked what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you consider doing that. Speaking of what you're hearing, uh, what you are hearing are recordings that are still taking place remotely. Kate's in her home. I'm in my home. We're recording over Zoom. So, Kate, do we have another listener letter? We do. We've gotten so many recently. Yes. (laughs) So this person wrote us on behalf of their partner. So he says, my partner works at a nonprofit in a position that interacts with the general public more or less constantly. She enjoys the work she does and the community outreach involved. However, Recently, the higher-ups in this organization have decided that they will no longer allow employees to sit down during work. They cite aesthetic reasons for this change as they worry that sitting looks lazy. They only make an exception for individuals with a doctor's note. Um, He goes on to mention some studies that show that standing at work can be detrimental to your health. Um, And he finishes saying... As such, my partner and her fellow workers wish to make their concerns known. Unfortunately, the people who made these decisions are beholden to no one. They are the very top of the organizational structure. There seems to be a real issue here. How can these employees maintain their job security and also be taken seriously while making their concerns known? Well, there's a couple of interesting things in here, so uh, let's get to work. Great. Where should we start? Well, um, there's two issues here. One is the arguably questionable policy of forcing people to stand up who might have good health reasons to not uh, stand or who might have good health reasons to be seated when possible. So that that's an interesting issue. Sure. But it, it sounds like the, the more general issue that our listener is concerned about is this concern about voicing concern to someone in power, particularly to someone in power when you're worried about your own job security. Right. This standing issue, well, strike it strikes me as very strange, but maybe not as universal as needing to bring up concerns with your boss. I'm sure everyone's had to do that. And I, you know, I, I hesitate to comment on the forced standing issue because I, I know absolutely nothing about the circumstances and not knowing anything about the details. I'm just going to take it for granted, uh, and Kate, I wonder if you agree, we, we just take it for granted that they have a good case to be made that people should be allowed to sit. So let's just assume that that's the case, that there's a good case to be made. Sure. I, I would believe that. But we talk a lot on this show about how disagreements and tensions in the workplace, while they might not seem like moral or ethical disagreements at their core, really might be moral or ethical disagreements. And I think there might be a hidden moral or ethical tension here. And I think a first step in confronting people in positions of power is to get to the bottom of that. You know, our listener mentioned, as you said, there are aesthetic reasons that it just doesn't look good. 
but maybe they're not maybe they're not aesthetic reasons uh figuring out if the powers that be might have actual moral or underlying ethical reasons for their quote unquote disagreement with the people working for them uh it'd be really good to try and zero in on that and figure out what those are and so i think first step before even confronting is to do some homework and really try to zero in on that. How do you think that would help uh, this letter writer's partner and her coworkers approach their boss? Well, actually, I think there's a couple of ways, actually more than a couple of ways in which it would help. First and foremost, if a disagreement's ultimate source is some underlying value tension or moral disagreement, then there really is no hope of resolving it at all until you figure out what that is. I mean, if that's the genuine source, you got to go to the source before you can resolve the disagreement. So that's that's one way. Sure. Another way is it's just going to play a lot better when you approach them. Uh, you will approach them uh, having thought carefully about their position. Uh, they'll see that you've done that. They're not going to perceive you as just one of these people who whines about a policy but doesn't come up with any creative solutions, right? It's sort of um, just nagging them that you just don't like this thing but you haven't done any work to help them figure out how can we achieve the goals that I wanted to achieve with this policy. I feel like there can be a reaction sometimes with a new policy. A lot of people just don't like new things being implemented. If you haven't considered why it's been implemented, they may just think it's sour grapes about a new policy at all. That's a really good point. Yeah, they may just perceive you to be, oh, you just don't like change because you haven't actually given them a fair hearing in their mind about why they might why they might think this is a reasonable policy. And a- another reason it's helpful to get to the bottom of what might be their moral or ethical reasons for the policy is that you will hopefully in doing this work have thought of creative solutions that would help the powers that be achieve the goals they want without needing as restrictive of a policy. And I can tell you from experience people are much more likely to change their mind about a policy if you give them some creative alternatives that meet their goals, or at least address the worry that led to the policy in in some different way. And so I just think it's going to be much more fruitful overall if you really do serious work to try and understand where they're coming from and what these underlying moral reasons might be. That totally makes sense. Uh, So what might they be? I find it helpful. The thing they cited as their reason is that it looks lazy. And for whatever reason, they don't like the fact that they think the employees look lazy. I think it would be good to peel the onion back a little bit more and say, okay, now why might they be concerned about it looking lazy? And I'm going to hazard a guess that nine times out of 10, it has to do with they're fearful that it might hit the revenue in some way, shape, or form. So I'd be it'd be useful to try and think through What are all the ways in which the powers that be might possibly think this hurts revenue? And that's going to vary depending on on the situation. And we don't know what kind of work this nonprofit does, so it's hard for us to make that judgment. Exactly. But I can lump nonprofits into some general categories based on how they tend to get their revenue. And maybe one of these uh, hits close to home for our listeners. So uh, some nonprofits are highly dependent on donor dollars. If they, if a donor walks in and sees that everybody's sitting around, again, I'm trying to put my mind inside the head of the powers that be, I could see them being worried about, well, gosh, what if a donor walks in, 
looks around, thinks everyone's being lazy, and usually when people are sitting around, some donors are going to think there must not be enough work for all the people you've employed here. And so why would I bother giving money to this organization? You obviously don't need the money. You're spending it on, you're spending it on employees and you're spending it on labor that you, that you just don't need. And so maybe they're worried about that. And why is this a moral reason? Well, they probably feel a moral obligation to execute the mission of the company, to be faithful stewards of the donor dollars. And if they think the donors are going to get the impression that they're not faithful stewards of their dollars, then that might be a cause of concern. Yeah, there might be a fear, too, that if they lose the donor, then they lose the nonprofit altogether. And so if if sort of this idea of laziness catches on and you lose your revenue stream, then you may not be able to do any of the work that you've been doing. Now, it, it may be that the revenue doesn't come from donors, but it's a similar it would be a similar worry. Like maybe they get money um, from grants that are funded by the local government, uh, which ultimately are taxpayer dollars. And so taxpayers are walking in and I find taxpayers are probably more sensitive than donors, right? Taxpayers walk in, uh, see some people sitting around, think, my gosh, this organization is employing all these people to sit around and do nothing. Why are my tax dollars uh, going to fund this? Uh, and so maybe they're, maybe they're worried about that. Maybe they have an image to keep up with taxpayers so that taxpayers uh, don't think that their taxpayer dollars are going to waste. Maybe they're customers. Maybe the, maybe the organization sells products to people or sells services. Uh, and when the customers walk in and see a bunch of people sitting around, they, they think, ah, this, I, don't, I don't get a good feeling about this place. These people seem lazy to me or some, something along those lines. I don't, I don't know exactly what that would be. But it might not just be revenue. It might not be funding, but also the very services that they offer or the clientele that comes in. So encourage you to think about ways in which the powers that be might be thinking about how the look of laziness in their mind would impact revenue. Now, they might be worried about things other than revenue. I know a lot of nonprofits rely on volunteer labor. And, you know, the people walking in and observing everyone sitting down, if they were to perceive laziness and these are potential volunteers, they're like, my gosh, they don't they don't need me. They've got these three people sitting over there not doing anything, right? Like, why, why would I volunteer here? Volunteers are looking for engaging, meaningful work. And if if it looks like there's not engaging, meaningful work, then they might say, you know what, I'm going to go volunteer at the place down the street, something like that. So maybe they think, maybe the powers that be think that this look of laziness could impact a volunteer base. Similarly, they, they might think, Maybe if it's not volunteers, nonprofits often rely on collaboration with other community partners. So maybe they're worried about how it might impact relationships with community partners, right? The executive director from a nonprofit that they want to work closely with walks in, sees everybody sitting around and thinks, why would I want to work with these people? They obviously don't do work. And so maybe, maybe that's the source of anxiety for the powers that be with this look of laziness. Yeah, our, our letter writer called these concerns about laziness aesthetic, but they might be more practical. That it's, if, if people think of us a certain way, they're not going to want to fund us, they're not going to want to work with us, and they're not going to think that we do important work. And you could go straight from the practical or the pragmatic to the ethical. So why would they have these pragmatic concerns? Well, because at its core, if these things don't go well, Bad things happen that in their mind are morally bad things that happen. There's another way in which ethics might be hiding in the background. One way, of course, is the it's hiding behind the quote-unquote aesthetic reasons. 
But another one has to do with this word laziness. Yeah, I noticed that. I think that that must really hurt to be called lazy. Yes, and it also hurts if you are a potential client and you walk in and someone is being lazy, what you might really mean is they obviously don't care about me, right? If they cared about me, they wouldn't be sitting there. They'd be doing something differently. And so sometimes we use the word they're being lazy as a substitute for that person obviously doesn't care about me or why I've come into this building for assistance. And they get kind of offended by it. So it's it's not that the... So the powers that be, when they use the word laziness, they might be using this morally loaded notion of laziness that it, it it's not merely aesthetic. It communicates lack of care for the community. And maybe they've got something like that going on. Right. That It may not be that they're actually accusing their workforce of not working very hard, but there's a sort of feeling of lack of energy or a lack of, like you said, a lack of care that when people come in, that it's it doesn't present the kind of environment that they want people to walk into. I think, as we said, it would be helpful to try and try to tease out what are the moral or ethical reasons that they might have. And I'm not saying these are good ones. I'm just saying you need to do the work of figuring out what they might think are good ones uh, and how that perception could shape their relationships with people and negatively impact the organization might be at its core. And it would be good to try and figure out if you think they have any of those. These perceptions could also be characterized as misperceptions, right? Especially from the workforce's point of view. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I, I'm, and I imagine our listeners thinking that it's like, yeah, okay, fine. But isn't it totally unreasonable for someone to walk in, look around for 30 seconds, see a couple people sitting down and then infer that they must be lazy? I mean, why, why should we be beholden to the, you know, irrational, unreasonable misperceptions of donors, volunteers, potential clients, et cetera, right? Yeah. I think that's a really good point, but uh, I think it is worth noting that people in positions of management who are thinking about broad strategic considerations, they don't necessarily always plan to accommodate the reasonable person. They, they also plan to accommodate the unreasonable person, the, the irrational person, the person who's going to be quick to judge. Uh, and there's a lot of good reasons to do this. Um, for one, if there's a misperception at that level, you know, on the ground, you don't always discover that misperception. They take that misperception with them. They, they spread that misperception to the community. Uh, you have no control over that message. And once that message spreads... The damage is done, and it's really hard to undo a negative perception of an organization within a community once that negative perception has spread. And so people are often, I think, reasonably concerned about the misperceptions of irrational people. So if we're dealing with the unreasonable, how far should an organization go to prevent misperception? Is is there a chance that this standing thing maybe falls too far on that side of, of maybe bending over backwards too far to accommodate the misperception of we're not doing anything? 
Yeah, that's a good question. There certainly has to be some kind of line. You know, you can't accommodate every possible irrational belief. You might say, okay, no, we don't, we don't accommodate all misperceptions. So I think where you draw the line is you'd be thinking about misperceptions that you think a, a, a vast majority of otherwise reasonable people might find themselves easily falling into. And you have good reason to believe that those misperceptions would significantly impact your ability to faithfully execute the mission of the organization. Is it a misperception that a reasonable person could find themselves falling into in a moment of periodic irrational judgment? And is that misperception likely to cause harm to the organization? You know, when you're thinking about creative solutions, you might want to take that into account. Like, where do you think this misperception of laziness falls into? Is it something that only a handful of people would pick up on or, or have? And does that handful of people not really impact the ability to faithfully execute the mission of the organization? Then you might, you might make the case that this misperception is a boogeyman that they shouldn't really be worried about. But if you do your digging, you're like, well, actually, gosh, yes, we've, we've done our homework and we think a lot of people really might perceive us this way. And it would be really, really bad if a lot of people perceived us this way. Then, you know, maybe the powers that be are onto something. But without knowing details about your particular situation, we couldn't really tell you. You have to sort of figure that out on your own. Well, Andy, you brought up creative solutions. Could we spend some time trying to like just spitball a couple of solutions that might solve this problem? Yeah. And this is this is part two of doing your homework before you speak to the powers that be. You've you've identified their possible moral issues. Now you want to come into creative solutions. We're going to offer some generic examples that you might be able to avail yourselves of. We don't actually presume to think these are solutions that our listener should run with. We have no idea what the circumstances are, but this will just give you a, a an illustration of what the general strategy is, which is to figure out first what their moral reasons might be, and then discover solutions that fit their moral goals that also sit with the goals that you have, you know, in this case, standing up. Yeah. Okay, so here's one option. If the powers that be think that this uh, communicates laziness, come up with creative solutions for the powers that be that might counter and preemptively counter the laziness message with some kind of obvious communication, right? So maybe signage that emphasizes the inclusiveness of the organization, you know, that, that's a message to employees like, hey, if you have any workplace accommodations uh, that require, you know, help, please note that you should talk to us at any time if that could be somewhere visible. I have no idea if that's a good idea for this particular organization, but the general strategy is find creative ways in which you could counter, if sitting communicates laziness, find creative ways to sort of subliminally communicate to the people walking into the building that the people are sitting here for good reason. I think that's a really great idea. The building that housed most of my classes in grad school was a 10-story building. And there was an elevator. And for the first couple years, there was sort of an unspoken rule that you shouldn't take the elevator to the first or second floor. 
And so if you'd stand in the elevator with lots of people, you'd start at the bottom and on the first or second floor, someone would get out. Everyone else would sort of look at each other, roll their eyes and keep going. A couple years later, the university put up a sign that reminded us that not every disability is visible. And it really changed my perspective and I think a lot of others that instead of looking at the students or faculty who left the elevator on the first or second floor and just thinking, oh, how lazy, that it reminded me that you don't know what's going on with people's bodies. And that sign, which was a pretty simple fix, opened my eyes. You know, another option would be to think about when in the day would sitting communicate laziness? You know, are there particular times where standing is much more important. And so instead of a policy of stand at all times, the policy could be stand when people walk in the door, like a kind of courtesy. You get up to greet them and welcome them in. And then you go back to sitting and doing your work. Or try to remain standing during the busiest times, maybe when we have the most visitors, that then that shows a sort of dynamic energy. But if no one is here, you don't have to stand. Right, exactly. Um, you know, I I used to wait tables and work as a host at a restaurant. Um, the owner of the restaurant had what struck me as a very reasonable policy, which is, uh, one, there should always be someone standing at the door uh, to greet people, but you can rotate, right? So it doesn't always have to be the same person. And then if there is no one standing at the door when someone walks in the door, you should stand up to greet them. So there was this kind of flexible standing policy. And so that's actually what sort of had me thinking about this kind of solution. Sure. Could you think about times when standing is more important? And that might, depending on what the the work is that this nonprofit does, that might help make people coming in feel more comfortable. If, if they're, you know, in distress and are standing uh, looking for some sort of relief, and everyone is sitting, that there might be this sort of uncomfortable dynamic that will, that if everyone was standing or if everyone was sitting, might lend a sense of equality and comfort and welcome. That's, yeah, that's a good point. In fact, that was another thing that I learned while working at this restaurant. Um, the, the owner had this philosophy that people are more comfortable when you are talking to them at their eye level. So, you know, when they're walking in the door, you stand to greet them. Uh, but when I was a waiter, they're sitting down and the owner wanted us to sort of get down on their level. So like pull a chair around and sit down and take their order. Or if there's an empty seat, sit down and take their order, get down on your knees and have the pad on the table and be taking it that way. Because it, it just created this kind of warmness that she liked uh, and that she thought gave the customer a good experience. And so maybe the powers that be have something like this in the back of their mind where it's just it's more welcoming when you are up there standing with them. And if you do need to sit and you're interacting with them, pull a chair on the other side of your desk, invite them to be able to sit, sit with you, right? So that you're both sitting. Again, not knowing any details about the particular situation, have no idea if this is a good solution or not. But we're just sort of giving you examples and you would be left to your own devices to decide if there are different creative solutions. Another possible solution is if there's work like 
emails, phone banks, things that would be much more comfortable sitting. If that kind of work could be done more out of sight, then there might be some arrangement that you could come up with where the public facing work and interacting with clients and visitors, that that's standing. But the other kind of work that's also really important for nonprofits, that that happens in a back room where everyone gets a chair. Yeah. And now we have the potential uh, moral reasons of the boss. We've come up with some creative solutions. What do we do with these now? Where do we go from here? Yeah, the original question was, how do we talk to the boss? We haven't even gotten there yet, right? So um, I think you take this to the boss, and here's here's a possible way to do it. If you're all on the same level and you're all feeling vulnerable, um, you might pick someone who is the least vulnerable among the group and have that person as a designated spokesperson to go to the boss or the powers and say, hey, I got together with a group. We tried to think through what all the critical reasons are you might have for thinking this is a good policy. Here's what we think they might be, and just give them what you think the moral reasons might be, right? We think you're worried about laziness because of revenue, or we think we're worried about laziness because of volunteers, whatever it is. Um, and then just ask, are, are we right about that? Is that where the worry about the look of laziness is coming from? And then one of two things will happen. Either they'll say, my goodness, you nailed it. That is exactly why we're worried about laziness. Or they'll say, no, nah, you just totally missed it. Uh, the actual reason we're worried about laziness is this other thing over here. And then there's two paths for you. If, if it's the first one, you nailed the reasons, then you're like, great, that's what we thought it was. And we came up with th this list of creative solutions. I just wanted to run some by you and get your thoughts and see what you think. Or if it's the second, if it's if it's the you missed it, you didn't get the reasons right, uh, you say, okay, I, I see now. Uh, we had some creative solutions, but those are irrelevant now, and I don't want to waste your time. So I'm going to take this back to the group. We'll get our heads together, and we'll get back to you to see if we can come up with any other creative solutions. That might sting a little bit, but at least then you know the boss's reasons. Yeah, and the nice thing is... Uh, by taking it as a group, nobody has to own any of the things that might make the powers that be angry enough to want to fire someone. And, uh, and as an aside as well, if, it's, if you are a part of a group and someone is the, the leader of the group, there's a reporting structure, then another good way to handle things is have the leader of the group represent the interests of the group to the powers that be and again, that provides people with some shield and some some clearance, right? I, I do this a lot where someone's like, I have this concern and I will take it to the powers that be. And they're much more comfortable. They know that their concern is being taken seriously, but you know they don't have to be the ones to go out on a limb. Right. They're shielded from some of the consequences if they were bad. Uh, I will say there are two other really good reasons to take an approach like this. One is... There, there are studies that suggest that you're much more likely to change someone's mind when they see that you see they're coming from a place of values. When, the, when they see that, that you can see that they're not being arbitrary, can see that they're not being capricious, can see that they probably have good moral reasons uh, that you just happen to disagree with, they're going to be much more open to conversation, I think, and you're going to be much more likely to change their minds. People really shut down if you approach them with a kind of attitude of, this is the evil person who's doing this horrible thing to us. How dare you fix it? But if you can say, hey, you know, I see you've got this policy. 
I think you probably have one of these three ethical considerations in mind, and I just wanted to talk about that. That's a, that's a much easier way to try and, and change someone's mind. And the other upshot is uh, you will display, I think, remarkable competence with respect to understanding the industry or sector that you're in. You've managed to think through all of their pain points, and, and you've come up with creative solutions so that they don't have to do much work to pivot. Bosses like it when you ask them to make changes that they don't have to do anything to implement. So I think uh, you're much more likely to get what you want if you take a strategy like this. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. And thank you to the listener who wrote to us with this interesting question. Please keep it coming. We love to hear from our listeners. It feels good to know that we're not speaking into the void. Uh, But even more importantly, it feels good to help people think through interesting moral dilemmas in the workplace. I look forward to hearing from more of you. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Barry. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me at katherineberry at depaw.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. Mm-hmm.